I didn't mean to intrude. I need to find someone. You'll get a shot! Do you hear the screams? There's no time. If I don't stop what is about to happen... Yes, yes, I can imagine. I don't think you can. Magic is mysterious, Professor. Perhaps you're part of it. There's more at stake here than the Professor's life, or yours, or mine. It's something anomalous. What do you mean, anomalous? Oh, it's on a sort of bridge, made of ice. I would dearly love to step through it. You might not like where it leads. So one can't make friends at gunpoint. He has brought us to the brink of war! When I need your opinion, I'll shoot myself. Kill him. If you follow me, you'll die. Run, Kitty! Shoot him! Oh, right, it, it won't come! Run! This is going to be a massacre! Won't make it past the gate. <laughs> Kill my friend. Shoot him! Shoot him now! Stay down. Wait! Oh! It's an odd man that can see the wood, but not the trees. I've seen a lot of trees. Hi, this is Dr. Phil for Adventures in Time, Space, and Music, and I'm joined by Dan Freeman, who is the mastermind behind the BBCI production of Death Comes to Time, as well as the new spinoff, The Minister of Chance, and we'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be, to be here. How did you get involved with doing a project like Death Comes to Time? Uh, well, that that was weird because um, I was just friends with Sophie Aldred and I was vaguely aware of Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, you know, but I wasn't I wasn't a kind of a f- avid follower um, and uh, I was only vaguely aware of it. And I, uh, I got to meet Sylvester McCoy uh, at the Edinburgh Festival one year. Uh, Sophie took me to see this friend of hers called Sylvester McCoy, who I, I knew from he did a lot of children's programs when I was a child, you know. So I knew him from that and I'd seen him in a play, but I wasn't really, um, I hadn't really, really seen his Doctor Who much. And I actually said to her, oh, is, is Doctor Who still on? And she was like, no, no, of course, no, no. You know, and, but she anyway, we went to see Doctor Who, we went to see um, Sylvester McCoy do a Samuel Beckett play. And I was very struck by uh, his performance. And it, it, there was, it was a very kind of ramshackle affair in a, in a mold a canteen somewhere on the outskirts of Edinburgh. It was very, very unglamorous, but it was very powerful. And I thought Sylvester's facility for pathos and uh, tragedy was um, amazing. And then we were talking about, you know, how they, those, I met them after, met Sylvester afterwards. And I was talking to him and uh, Sophie about how they knew each other and so on. And then how Doctor Who was on. And I was doing producing for the BBC at the time. I said, well, you know, why don't we do a radio one? And Sophie said, oh, you know, that's a a great idea. Could we do that? I, I went to my boss then and said, you know, I think, what about doing Doctor Who on the radio? And he said, oh, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So off I went, and then it took a, a long, convoluted kind of internal warfare to get it anywhere. But uh, and uh, and then I got it onto a channel called Radio Four. You may be aware of it. It's a speech program for the BBC. And I got I got 
the head of Radio 4 was, uh, gave me the money for, a, for the pilot and he was sure it wouldn't work. He, he said it just won't work. You know? And I've I, I never understood that, how it wouldn't work, I don't know. And that's still the attitude. You know? they, they, they still won't, probably won't take it, I, I think. So we'd made the pilot and then the head of Radio 4 had by that time left and the new regime at Radio 4 didn't want the pilot. So I just rang the cast and said, look, we've, it's, it's not going to happen. Shall I give it to BBC Online? And so they said yes. And we gave it to BBC Online. It got so many hits that they really had to commission the rest of it, even though there was no precedent. Or, and they weren't, they weren't a sort of commissioning body, but they didn't have any money or anywhere, anywhere to commission anything. But they basically had to because it just got so many, so many hits. Where did the storyline come from for Death Comes to Time? Because, I mean, I guess probably in other spin-off media and other things later, I'm sure there's lots of it that's been contradicted, but but it's quite epic and grand in its scale. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it's difficult to give you an honest answer. I mean, I don't really know. I just, I thought I was thinking about what would happen to a Time Lord who, someone who'd been alive for a long time, really. And I thought, I thought the ba- the different facets of it might be someone who endures it the, the doctor endures it th- through his moral superiority the bad guy endures it as long as he has to but he tries not to endure it and tries to turn it to evil and the sort of fallen character in it uh fails to behave responsibly with that power you know someone put on twitter gotadama sci-fi or something like that which was a great I thought I really liked that term, um, but I—I uh, I don't know if I'm making sense. But the, I mean, I think it was all driven by Sylvester's performance in that—that that Beckett that I saw. Because what, uh, what what I always think about Sylvester is he's such a great clown and he's such an affable. I mean, he, he is a really—you know—everyone says, "Oh, he's a nice bloke," and you know, so and so about our cast and so on. But he—he he really is a very very nice bloke, a very and a very humble. Uh, bloke as well he just he's not interested in money or glamour or anything like that he's interested in doing interesting things genuinely you know he'll he loves doing things at the drop of a hat he's such an affable presence in everything in anything he's really a pleasure to be around I mean he's a really a great friend of mine and uh, you know everybody loves him and that's why he's so good at tragedy because he's he's funny and he's affable and he's lovely and it comes across on stage you know uh, he was a great fool in King Lear, which, which is what turned um, Peter Jackson onto him. And uh, so, for tra- in tragedy, when he does a tragedy, if something bad happens to him, it's terrible because he's so nice. You know, he's, he's such an affable, a, a warm presence. And it was that that his facility for tragedy and world weariness that 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 made me think of that kind of epic, kind of Twilight of the Gods kind of thing. Especially with that connection to Wagner's Goetherdammerung, it's amazing how you do use pieces such as Siegfried's Funeral March is a very significant part of the soundtrack, as well as Beatrix Smetana, and at the very end, of course, Dvorak Symphony Number no. 9, the New World Symphony. What made you pick um, musical choices to tie the thing, the, the whole audio drama together because, I mean, if you look at, at film, you know, like Siegfried's Funeral March, you have films like Excalibur, which use that as central themes to create the added gravitas on top of what happens in the drama. I suppose the, the thing with audio drama is, or, I mean, the reason we call it radiophonics is because it's kind of, you can either have a script written 
uh, and then you get to direct it. Or you can write the script with a view to how you're going to cast it and what's going to happen. You know, so instead of saying, oh, my God, the uh, knight with the red armor on is coming towards us. What are we going to do? You can write into the script a scene where it, it suggests that the knight is wearing red armor. Or when the knight w with red armor appears, you're in trouble. Um, so you can script it like that. and You can cast it in a certain way. And you can also use music. So in a scene where the, you know, the black army is coming towards you and that's a bad thing, you can just put across the information that the black army is coming towards you and you can, send, you can demonstrate that it's a bad thing via the music. You know. I suppose the, uh, the Siegfried's uh, march, is, uh, it, it just really suggested itself because it's, it's tragic. You know? it, it has that element and it has that, that beautiful rumble, you know, the... All of the cello, the cello, especially the cello and bass kind of moody flowing line that sounds like the ebb and flow of, of water in a very deep register with the kind of the timpani hits kind of punctuating it. It's, it's, it's you know, it's quite dramatic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I was using light motifs like you would, you know, like you would in an opera or something. So, you know, when, when the minister of chance is in Death Comes to Time, when he's referred to, that's his theme, really. When he appears... It, it, it plays, but also when he's referred to, it, it appears, or when his his predicament uh, makes a show is brought up, maybe in speech or something, it, it appears, and you'll get that boom, boom, you know, the the bass in the background under stuff, and it just sort of you don't you're not supposed to notice it um, uh, overtly, but it, it's kind of. You know, you, you're, it's a subconscious thing as, that we're talking about the minister, for example. The smetna you use in the score from Bohemia's Woods and Fields is from Mavlast. Um, whose theme was that constructed to, or used to represent? I mean, sometimes it's a leitmotif and some for a character, but that was, I think that was, I think that's when the doctor is walking, marching to confront the minister, maybe. It just, that just kind of suggested itself. It sort of showed a, it suggested a journey and a sort of strife and of course, I mean, the, the idea of the Doctor being torn between his friend and his duty and, and averting cataclysm and, and having to, you know, having to, to finish off his, his friend. So it just, it, you know, to be honest, sometimes just music just suggests itself and it's not necessarily a theme. And I mean, I, I'm limited as well in terms of what I can use um, in terms of rights, because... Then the BBC had a license, well, I had a license via the BBC um, to to use certain pieces of music or to use any music, but, um, it, you know, it costs costs money. It costs quite a lot to use a piece of music in a, in a drama. And so for the minister now, this current production, I'm limited quite heavily by um, by bit budget, what, what I can use. I mean, I, was, I wanted to use some uh, Havanas um, in, in it, but I couldn't. I just couldn't afford to use it. So... Um, quite a lot of the same pieces of music I'm using. I'm looking at my, my CD collection now, and it's production music. It's music that is made specifically for this kind of thing. So I have a license to use it. 
um, in a limited way. But, um, you know, that comes into it. Cost comes into it. If I had uh, a lot of money, I would, I would buy a, you know, really good, great orchestra and uh, I would have any piece of music I wanted, you know, and I would get it composed. You know, I'd get, get somebody in to compose it and specifically I would use an orchestra and get it done bespoke. But, you know, that, the costs of that are enormous, so I couldn't. Well, during the during the battles at the end of Death Comes to Time, when Tannis is attacking Earth, and of course the Brigadier appears from behind the moon with a unit fleet, and you know you have Dvorak's Symphony Number no. Nine, Last Movement, which is great, great action music to appear, and I thought that that was an, an excellent choice appearing there and you know being a symphonic musician i'm going oh there's that piece and oh there's that piece but for the casual listener they won't they won't recognize it it'll just kind of have a more kind of familiar reference to them as oh i might have heard this before but it's mostly the affect of what the piece does well uh, thank you for the compliment i i I'm really, you know, I'm glad that you, I, you're, you're expressing exactly what I wanted it to do. You know, I, I'm very glad it had that effect on you. I think some people will recognize it and some won't. Um, but I was kind of really banking on people not specially recognizing it or associating it with anything. And, it, and as you say, it's terrific action music. And I think the, if I'm right, the first scene in Death Comes to Time, I mean, of course, I haven't heard it for years. You know, it, it, I think that starts with with this uh, new world, Project's new world. But as you say, it's really, really, it's so dramatic. Um, I mean, it has some sort of thematic resonance as well, because it's the idea is a, is a new world, you know, a new world order for the Time Lords kind of thing. Now there were some other cues you you used in there, and it, they were kind of hard to spot what they were. I know when Ace um, is granted a TARDIS, that there's kind of this very ethereal chanting. And what out of the score were things that you were able to use from production libraries, and what are other things that you needed to actually write? Oh well, that yeah, I know exactly what piece of music you're you're talking about because um, I uh, I'm going to use it again. We're we're actually um, there is a sort of film uh in the offing possibly of the of the minister that may be used in in that in a sort of in a sort of teasing sense for that film project and uh it, I, I think yeah that's really atmospheric that's uh i think it's 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 sort of um intended to be russian orthodox hymns or something um i can't remember that yeah that's just production music somebody's written it and put it on a cd and you know it's got a i can't you know it'll be these things will be called something like Russian moods or, uh, you know, Orthodox Greece or, you know, something like that. And they'll have, they'll have lots of tracks on them that have just been written on the, on, in the hope that they'll be used and then the makers will get paid for them. That's a, that's a wonderful piece of music. The only, the bits we, that were written were um, done by Nick Romero, who, who rewrote the theme for, uh, Death Comes to Time. He wrote the, the Doctor Who theme, and he he did a slow. I remember he did a slow cut of it. You know, not to give away too much at the end when there's a sad sad events in the Doctor's uh, in the story. The Doctor Who theme goes slow and tragic. So that was the. I think that was the only written bit.
what's what's interesting seeing it years or listening to it years years later from when it was written how did you become involved with wanting to do a spin-off for the minister of chance and and what were the origins of that project uh, it, it was Stephen was was always keen on doing doing the sequel. You know, Stephen Fry was always doing uh, doing the sequel, and um, or, or rather, he was keen on doing a, a series with the character. Basically, I, I put it to um, a, a commissioner at the BBC, and he seemed very keen on it. He said, and I didn't think there would be, but so you know, we we uh, I put that to Stephen Fry, and he, you know, said you know, there's a possibility of doing it, and he was like, oh yeah, great. So we started, we got it, you know, quite a lot, started getting it going quite a lot. And Stephen just couldn't, couldn't do it. Uh, he just had too much on. We were thinking about, you know, what, what could we do? And I had met Julian Wadham a few years ago on a completely, you know, unrelated thing. And uh, I was just sitting opposite him in a waiting room. And I, I suddenly said, you know, quite scarily for him, I think I said, Oh my God, you played Pitt. <laughs> And he said he looked kind of scared, as he, as, he, as he should. And he said, "Oh well, yes, I did, yeah." yeah. And he, uh, if you if you've seen the have you have you seen the film The Madness of King George? Oh, you've got to watch it. it I mean, it's a great film. His Julian Wadham's performance in it is hilarious as the as the as the Prime Minister Pitt. You know, sort of stuffed shirt, very kind of priggish. I mean, he's he's a phenomenal actor, absolutely amazing. You know what he comes what he pulls out of the bag. And he's not, he's acting in front of not even a blue screen. He's acting into a microphone, you know. He is incredible. So anyway, I just said to him when I, you know, this was years ago, I said, oh my God, you play Pitt. And we chatted and I said, oh, I'd love to write something for you. And then, so when Stephen pulled out or, you know, he couldn't do it, he didn't pull out, but he, he just couldn't do it. He was really, he was just too busy, you know. And we thought, you know, what are we going to do? And then we were thinking about who to do it, who we could, who could possibly fill those shoes. And then I thought Julian could do it, and maybe Julian could do it. So we asked him, and, we, and he said yes. You know, then it was a then it was a goer, and then we had the the rest of the cast, um, you know, fell into place, and uh, and we went with it. And um, it's been uh, you know it's been such a long trawl to get it on, underway, but it's uh, it's just, the reception it's got has been amazing. And it's, well, also you have a very unique method of distribution. Would you describe that? Because I think it's it's probably very groundbreaking. There's something ironic when listening to the CD extras for Death Comes to Time and talking about the the use of the internet as a new medium for for drama and how you have Sylvester, who's of course very supportive and very optimistic, and there's an individual who's just kind of going, oh, it's never going to be as good as television. And then with this production, you're doing the same sort of, you know, innovating and in distribution of content. Well, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of that. You know, I forgot about those. Again, I haven't heard the extras, you know, for, it must be 10 years or something. Like I can't remember, you know, it's at least eight years anyway. But um, you're right, you know, I mean, it was it was a new thing then. Um, the thing now is that we it was kind of an experiment as well. You know, we just we had no idea whether it would work or not. I mean, we, it's uh, but it's caused quite a lot of excitement. I mean, I was talking to some um, to some other you know, well, a film writer of um, uh, you know, fa fairly well known film writer, and, uh, and and I was saying, well, you know, what I've done is we, we I wrote something, then we made it. And then we put put it to the audience, you know, like a, a day. Well, you know, an hour after it was made, I, I it went 
to the audience. So the audience could hear it literally minutes after it was finished. It's a very exciting time for people who want to make stuff because um, for the first time, you don't have to go through commissioners or wait for multiple people to approve it or go for, through a studio or go through anything. You just make it and then sell it to people. And if they want it, they'll buy it. And if they don't, they won't. You know, so it's, it's very exciting. Um, I have to say, to be honest, that part of the reason we did this was through necessity because it's not they didn't want it, but they just didn't know what we were talking about, really. You know, like, a, it was, you know, it's very difficult to describe. It's like, it's like a radio thing, but it's not radio. It's kind of uses Foley and uh, sound uh, techniques from film, and it uses some uh, or binaural techniques, which uh, I can explain later if you like. It's basically a sort of 3D effect, and it uses music, you know, as we've discussed, light motifs and so on, and, and sort of scripting to, to create a, a kind of wall of sound, and, and it's sort of transports you via via oral cues you know but nobody knew that, that what the hell that was you know they, they were oh right um well you know it's, it's just not the sort of thing you get on on british radio or anybody's radio really any any radio programs that they, they're just not used to it. there's no no such thing as a dramatized podcast really um so it's a bit like a podcast but it's the first drama um, fiction drama one of its kind as far as I know so <laughs> it was really necessity in, the, in, a, in a way by doing it um, we've opened a lot of doors but well for the benefit of our listeners could you could you talk about your your cast and how you got them together because it's quite an exciting group yeah it was great you know I mean some I was doing another interview and somebody was saying you know what's it like with um, working with you know Paul McGann and Sylvester McCoy and Jenny Agatha and so on and the answer is, you, they come in and, uh, you know, Jenny Agatha wafts in. What you say to her is, oh, hi, Jenny, would you like um, do you like a cup of tea or coffee? And what you mean is, oh, my God, it's Jenny Agatha. Oh, God, you know, you want to ring your mum. You want to, you know, uh, it's, it's brilliant, you know. So to, to, my, to my great delight, they, they just, we, we did what you normally do, which is you send the script to their agent and their agent shows them. And uh, then you meet with them or whatever, and they size you up and see if you're um, a maniac and uh, and serious. And I was a maniac, but I was serious. So they they met me and me and Claire Eden, who's the executive producer, and they liked the script, and so they said yes. And um, you know, it, it's uh, it's really as simple as that. They they were up for it, and they they really they got paid awful amounts of money. They got paid offensive money for it but they really believed in it and they worked incredibly hard for it and um you know to the extent they're really stretching themselves to to support it and uh so it's you know it's fantastic we've got paul darrow who's um you know who's no stranger to blake seven and doctor who fans and we've got obviously paul mcgann um sylvester mccoy and uh, jenny agatha lauren crace um, and julian wadham and Lauren Crace was a uh, rather, um, rather kind of stereotypically. She was a an actress in a soap that uh, in EastEnders. She was suggested to me for the for the role of Kitty. I just really wasn't interested. I thought I thought she was too young, and I thought she was a kind of soap actress. And I mean I mean that in a bad way. I just I don't watch soaps. I'm not interested in them. Uh, I met her, and you know I just just wasn't interested. I wanted somebody 
a serious actor and you know I was completely wrong she just talking to her I could see how incredibly thoughtful and mature she was and and she's a very very serious actor you know very very powerful as well and awesome you know she's she's a a really an intellect so I was delighted to get her and um, we got some really strong competition for for that role for Kitty but she I kind of always knew it was her and she read uh, in the audition she read script and she I just looked at Claire um, the executive producer while she was reading it and I rolled my eyes at her because I was just absolutely blown away she's she's so good we've got an amazing cast and uh and, you know, everybody said that, that the, all the reviews have been saying, you know, what, what a, an amazing cast we've got. Now they really turn in some amazing performances. And, um, you know, I get a particular pleasure out of um, them all being more or less all being against type, you know, which isn't particularly deliberate. But, you know, I like the fact that you get Sylvester screaming and being an absolute swine, you know, and uh, yeah. And, now, where does the actual plot of the Minister of Chance take off? I mean, is it set before Death Comes to Time, possibly, or is it just a kind of an alternate history to that even? Well, can I raise my eyebrows through you, through, at you through the audio, through the medium of sound, <laughs> and wiggle them and look, try and look mysterious and alluring? <laughs> Which for a little fat man like me doesn't look very alluring, but it, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it, it's um, that may be that may come out hopefully in the rest of the that that will be apparent to those that are interested. I think later on, as as in as in the the tapestry of the storytelling is still unfolding, so that answer hasn't been hasn't been told yet. Okay, well, hang on, let me write that down. The tapestry of the storytelling. <laughs> That's good. I'm having that. <laughs> you know, but but it's 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 amazing to see that you have distribution through iTunes that the the website is actually very interactive the visuals it's the same artist who did some of the concept design work for death comes to time yeah i mean it's lee sullivan who's a who's a terrific um graphic um artist he's just done a really nice book called uh, the amulet of samarkand which is um which he gave a copy of my uh, copy of to my son um and i read it <laughs> before my before my son, it's he's a he's a fantastic artist, and I mean he again he did did me a great favor in doing those wonderful designs. Yeah, the website is uh, is very very whizzy and interesting, and again that's that's done by um, Bruce Collingwood, who's he's actually something that wouldn't have existed when we did Death Comes to Time, which is a social media expert, but um, he's an amazing amazing uh, designer of all things internet so uh, you know again we re I really lucked out I mean me and Claire always say to each other we are superb at casting people in terms of crew and uh, and uh, and actors you know we, we we pat ourselves on the back but a lot about that you know our crew is just it's just in, in, exceptional uh, actually I, pr I promised the crew I promised we, we had a we had a party at the launch and we promised that we weren't going to say how great we all were to on in interview so we, we wanted to do we, we made a pact to be really mean about each other so i take i have to, I have to take all that back and say they're all stank and they're all horrible people <laughs> sometimes in any project it's amazing to see 
when you when you look at the extras on films and such how people sometimes are just you can tell they're doing it because it's their job and other people times you can see that it's really their passion they're so incredibly happy to be there like, like how do you get the luck of having a group of people that are so dedicated to a project which in in, in in what's really neat about how you're doing the Minister of Chance is something that's so untried and new and innovative. Well, part, part of the reason is that we were looking for people who are nice and dedicated to the project because when you're casting, you really, you have a meeting with, with actors before, often, you know, before you talk about casting, you just kind of, when you're really, you're just pacing around the cage, uh, looking at each other and sizing each other up, you know, and... You're thinking, is this person going to take it seriously? Are they going to just think it's, oh, it's just audio. I'm going to turn up without having read the script. I'm going to, I may drop out, you know, are they, you know, are they thinking about the role? Are they, and uh, which sounds arrogant, you know, I mean, I'm, there's me sizing up screen legends and, and that, but you, you've got to do that. And so I think we, we met, we met them and we decided that they, you know, we liked them and they, and they obviously looked at us and decided that they liked us and that they, they wanted to take it seriously and, and um, you know, would be dedicated to it and, and vice versa. So, I mean, we did we did meet some people and, just, and we saw that they weren't like that, you know, that, that they weren't going to take it seriously. It doesn't matter how big someone is, if you, especially if you've got a big actor, they don't need the money. So they're, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they want to do it, you know. And uh, so they do tend to be quite serious about um, supporting it and so on. Um, and they this cast have been wonderful and i mean the other thing we 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 really had a great time doing it we there's a there's a, a functional reason for making sure everybody has a good time doing it because you only you don't get the best out of an actor if they turn up and you, they don't know where the dressing room is or they're hungry or they they don't get the coffee they want i mean we had cakes and stuff and we had lots of nice things to eat and you know buffet and so on it just everybody's relaxed and we, we had a nice time we had people helping and you know we just we just had a made it into a really nice relaxed time and that means the actors can relax and enjoy themselves and everybody has fun and and we all went to the pub afterwards and we had a, a really relaxed relaxed time of it and uh, we had fun you know even though it's hard work but it, that's how you make it good by by making everybody relaxed and able to concentrate on their job and you literally do that through coffee, cakes, signs telling people where they're going to go, chairs for them, you know. As the Minister of Chance is kind of a produce-as-you-go sort of venture, as as episodes sell, that funds the next part of the production, it's probably also good in order to keep people interested that are involved in performing in that it's a very pleasant experience because it kind of happens probably in waves, right? Well, you know, we, we we don't know how it happens because it's we've only done the two pilot episodes and the and the prologue. So, you know, we recorded them in in one batch, and then we just been praying, and uh, you know, we're now deciding on how production goes. But certainly, you know, you're you're always reliant on somebody um, wanting to do it again, and uh, I mean, you can contract them and that they have to do it again, but then who wants somebody who's doing it because they were contracted to do it? You want you want them to want to do it. I, actually, uh, another famous uh, name that I won't drop said to me, <laughs> this is an awful thing to say, he said, when you're working with an old actor, you think you always think, what happens if they die during the, during the production? You know, um, Who would I replace them with? Which is an awful thing to, 
to say, you know, but um, the same thing applies. You know, you've got to, you're really pretty much dependent on them being able to do it, you know. I mean, Sylvester, we, we weren't sure whether how things would go in New Zealand with, um, with the Hobbit, so how, when he would be needed and so on. So, you know, I had to give, I had to have some flexibility in my head for his character, whether it would come back or not, and if and when and so on. And that's probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my career is him getting a role in the, in the Hobbit and going and hanging out with Peter Jackson and so on. I was so excited about that. Well, I'm sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a group of people that are all very dedicated to a project. You just see them speak and passionately about every little detail that they're involved in. And it's, and it's great because I think for people not involved in either drama or music is that seeing how people are dedicated to what they do and also the fact that it's very hard work, this tends to be very inspirational. Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm a great believer in, you know, giving people a glimpse of the possible. You, you, you know, you make stories and they, you know, I, th- I think all, whilst we're not saving lives or anything, you, you give, people a, give people a story and they'll look forward to it and they won't, you know, if they're in a, an awful situation or something, they, they'll, it's, it buoys you through some, you know, having something, a glimpse of the possible. For people to find out more about the Minister of Chance and how they can, in a way, support your productions, where do they where do they go and where can they find the Minister of Chance? Well, they go to ministerofchance.com and there is the prologue there. They can download it uh, as an MP3 or they can download it on iTunes or they can listen to it on YouTube. Uh, and it's free, and it's 10 minutes long, and it uh, stars Paul McGann, and it's got Jenny Agatha and Lauren Crace as well. And that's the kind of taster of the world that, uh, that you're going to. So go to ministerofchance.com, download it, and enjoy free. And if you, uh, if you don't like it, you've spent nothing. And if you do, you can get the other episodes for a measly £1.29 each which I think is $1.99. They're 35 to 40-minute episodes, and they're £1.29, which is less than the cost of a pint of finest beer in Britain. So uh, they're, they're pretty cheap, and uh, I think they're good value. And hopefully you'll put your headphones on and you'll be carried to another world. Yeah, please try it. It's free. I would be delighted if all your listeners went and, and had a listen and uh you know give it a try oh well well hey well thank you very much for 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 spending the time and chatting and and we we all wish you the best of luck and success with the minister of chance and look forward to having many more episodes produced and so we'll hopefully keep our fingers crossed on your behalf as well yeah yeah great thank thanks Philip. thank you very much
Yes, this is Durian. Sir, this is going to be a massacre. Think about what you're doing. I'm sure you need more than one person for a massacre. But they're animals. They don't even have elections. The king killed his predecessor. How can you talk to them? Turn back. Take an escort. Take a weapon, at least. Oh, come along, men. One can't make friends at gunpoint. <laughs> Think of your family. I'll be in contact when it's done. Now, please, excuse me. I need to concentrate on my descent. I'm the ambassador from Sizwara. I come in peace. Where is your master? I am the only one aboard. My name is Julian. But your entourage? <laughs> well, I'm afraid in Sizwara, I don't merit one. I come alone. I hope I'm expected. You have been granted an audience with His Majesty. This is a great honor. We expected a delegation. Yes, me, I'm afraid. Sorry to disappoint you. You will kneel before entering His Majesty's presence. Do not stand unless His Majesty invites you to do so. Right, you are. He will not do so. Well, that's fine, but... Well, who's this beautiful lady? Oh, well, uh, this. Uh, may I present to Her Majesty Princess Dee? Your Majesty, I'm honoured to meet you. You've only got one face. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I'm sorry if that disappoints you. Nanny said a two-faced man was coming in a rocket. <laughs> but, uh, 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 your, your Majesty is mistaken. Uh, uh, this way, please. Well, I do have a rocket, but I seem to have lost the key. Do you have it? No. Really? Well, what's this behind your ear? Back off! Back off! Get away! No, I'm, I'm sorry, I do apologise. Do not touch Her Majesty. No one may touch Her Majesty. It is forbidden. Well, I apologise in the extreme. I'm unfamiliar with your customs. Your Majesty. Goodbye. Oh, I hope we'll be seeing a lot more of each other. Well, thank you for seeing me, Your Majesty. Ridiculous! I had no choice! Ah, well, um... Your Majesty, my name is Jurian. I'm the new ambassador to your country from the people of Cezouane. On behalf of my nation, I bring greetings. The sincere hope of amity between our peoples... And the hand of friendship. What do you want? Uh, your Majesty, as I said, I've come to extend the hand of friendship to Your Majesty on behalf... Get to the point or you will feel mine! Your Majesty, I am unarmed and alone. I am at your mercy. Yes, uh, the point. From my country's perspective, Your Majesty, the most pressing issue is the grave threat that faces my people. You groveling piece of shit! What can Cezwan need from our little island? Uh, Your Majesty, if I may, you are a warrior. It may be difficult for you to share the fear a civilian such as myself feels. We are under severe threat of unprovoked attack from the nation of Jura. Unprovoked? And what does your coming here do but provoke? Your wars are no concern of mine. What do you want from me? 
What? Uh, your Majesty, this is the subject of my mission. Your Majesty will be aware that your nation lies between Jura and my home of Cezanne. I know where my nation is, you imbecile! I didn't mean any disrespect. <coughs> to be precise, your Majesty's state represents an ideal refueling and resupply point for Jura. Were the Jurans to invade Tanto, their supply lines would be solid, and they could attack us with impunity. If they try to invade us, little man, we will water our soil with their blood. Every man and woman of Tanto bears arms. And every one of them a fearsome warrior such as yourself. However, our fear is that gallantry and skill with a blade may ultimately succumb to the power of projectile weaponry. Your Majesty, the Durans have guns. But we do not. We pose no threat to you nor to them. We are neutral... We are at peace. Your Majesty, I'm full of admiration for your principled stand. However, I fear that the Jurans may not respect your position in the same way. Your fears are none of my concern. Your Majesty... Is that all? Then get out. If Your Majesty will not hear my plea, will you hear an offer? You have nothing I want. We would be prepared to provide you with a whole garrison of our own troops as deterrent to Juran aggression. Your troops... On my soil, never! I'm suggesting that we might point the hand of friendship to your majesty. We are offering to protect you at our own expense. I offer to slice you in half, you maggot. You would invade us by stealth. Your majesty, please, I'm simply suggesting a friendship. The Jurans would see us as your allies. We have been at peace for centuries. I will not allow my people to be drawn into war. You may not have that choice. Your Majesty, if the Jurans move first... You are bold, sir. Were it not for the laws of hospitality, you would be a bloody corpse. It is just this sense of honour that the Jurans will exploit. Then we will take that chance. Alas, Your Majesty, we will not. What are you saying? What is this vile cloud? Clear the air, man. We must have our security, Your Majesty. Your vast army, for example, completely useless against projectile weaponry, of course. But you take my point. You and I will stop at nothing to protect our people. Should your majesty decline our offer, we will drop a plague onto your nation. Within one week, all human life on the island of Tanta will be gone. One week after that, the plague will have dissipated completely, and our troops will land nonetheless. You... Why? Alas, killing me would leave two little girls without a father. And the plague would come nonetheless. It would simply come after you were disemboweled in front of your daughter. Your troops? No one would stand for such an outrage. Your own people, surely. As I suggested, Your Majesty, there is another option. Whereby both of our families can sleep soundly. You frost-hearted reptile. Daddy! Well, look who it is. The princess with the magic ears. You're supposed to kneel down. Did he come here? Don't go near him. She's sweet. Menin, we have a new addition to our circle of friends. Prepare the 13th Legion for disembarkation. Now, where is the key to my rocket? Here's the key. It was behind your ear all the time. But you can't touch me. 